Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 57 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. We're back, Moira. Yes, we're back. It's been way too long and it's really nice to see you still, albeit via Zoom. We haven't seen each other for uh, 12 months. Yeah, yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It would have been about February that, that we actually did one in the studio. We've been doing sort of phone and Zoom ever since. I know, and we've both been pretty busy clinically, which has just led to a bit of a hiatus in terms of the podcast. But 2021, we're, we're back. We're back. And we're going to really dig deep and do them regularly this year. All right. And just a slight change in format. Rather than looking about what's been going on in sleep up front, we're just going to get straight into the theme in each episode. So the theme for this month's episode is talking about a thing called sleep state misperception, which is when people think or perceive that they're awake, when in actual fact they may be asleep. And it's something that's actually really common and something we come commonly come across in clinical practice. And I find it challenging. It's a challenging sort of thing to work with people. What about you, Moira? Do you see much of this in your practice? Yeah, I do, of course. But then sometimes um, it's hard to know up front, unless you're working in a sleep disorder centre and you've got sleep study data, like you never really know for sure, do you? Like, no, you're sort of working in the dark, really. I strongly suspect a lot of the time, particularly when the, when someone might say, you know, I didn't sleep at all for a week or I don't sleep, at, you know, I don't get a, an ounce of sleep, then you, you do know or you think to yourself, I think there's a, some degree of sleep state misperception. But it's a tricky area, so I'm really glad we're covering this. Yeah, you're right. It is a bit easier for me where I can access sleep studies to objectively measure sleep. But increasingly people can access wearables now and they're reasonable at measuring sleep. But people with insomnia who are a bit restless, that's one of the times the wearables will underestimate true sleep, which can yeah. actually feed into that belief that yeah. I'm not getting much sleep or look, look how little deep sleep. I'm getting. So, yeah. it, so it is a challenging area. So although we talk about the sleep state misperception, it's actually a normal part of sleep to take some time to realise you've actually been asleep. And it just seems that that's a little bit ad- exaggerated in people with insomnia. But we've all had the experience of nodding off on the couch and our partner goes, oh, what are you doing? You're nodded off and we deny that we've actually been asleep. That's the human experience. And it just is a bit more prominent in these conditions such as insomnia or anxiety or people who've had prior trauma. So to learn a bit more about it, we thought let's go to an expert, someone who's just finished her PhD just in December 2020, so quite recently. So Dr. Lika Herman from the Netherlands. And interestingly, um, she's from the Department of Electrical Engineering in her university, which I thought that's really cool. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So tell us a bit about your current role and what's the research you're doing at the moment? Uh, well, I finished my PhD in uh, December 2020 in the uh, University of Technology in Eindhoven, uh, and I'm working in a group who is doing sleep research uh, with Sebastian Overlein, who is a, a sleep professor there. And right now I'm doing a postdoctoral research in the same group. So I'm mainly organizing data collection, but I'm also uh, researching sleep architecture together with my colleagues. And you're in the engineering department and have that sort of background. How did you actually get into sleep research? My background is in medical signal processing, and I've always uh, liked also psychology, so the behavior of people and the, their thoughts. So for me, uh, studying the uh, 
EEG, so the brain signals was a really nice way to uh, combine those two things together. So I can have the technical parts and the psychology parts. Uh, so I started with uh, research into uh, epilepsy and delirium, and then I saw a vacancy for sleep research and uh, for insomnia. So I thought that would be really the good topic for me. Yeah, it is an interesting field in sleep. So in our clinical practice of doing a sleep study, we record so much data and it's such a rich data set. And we often, unfortunately, distill it down to a couple of indices that really are, or you lose the richness of those raw signals yeah. and data that we record. And there's really a lot of data in there that's uh, currently not used. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I've always thought that if people who are almost not in the sleep field can look at it and go, yeah, mathematically, I reckon I could tease out some waves or some variations or some patterns out of this data set. Yeah, yeah. And it's also difficult because we started, well, we started uh, wanting to do some uh, subtyping of insomnia patients, uh, looking at their objective sleep recordings. But then we, and we wanted to, to find new parameters for that. But then we found out that you really can extract everything because you have a very long signal, which is the whole night. And there's really a jungle of uh, thousands of different parameters that you can find. So it's really difficult to know where to start. Oh, come on. That's where you've got to give me the answers for the clinic. Hopefully you can find the signal amongst all that noise using mathematics. Because at a clinical sense, often a lot of insomnia looks pretty similar. So people start to think differently about sleep, get that hyper arousal type of phenotype. And clinically, it looks pretty similar. So yeah, I need your help to be able to tease those subtypes <laughs> yeah. out. We were thinking about this a lot, and then we soon figured out that we need uh, something to start with. So that it would be a very good idea to combine the uh, physiological parameters again with the psychological complaints. So that we could maybe find what's wrong with the sleep uh, of people who are uh, not experiencing a good quality sleep. And maybe we can start from there and say, okay, which nights or which part of the night are experienced in a bad way? And then can we find parameters from there that can fit to a bad quality of sleep? So that's why we started looking at sleep misperception. And why sleep onset in particular? Well, this was a bit of a coincidence in the beginning because um, I had a data set with 30 people with insomnia and uh, we noticed that all of them had a pretty decent total sleep time. So they were sleeping for about seven or eight hours. And most of them really had the impression that they had a very long sleep onset. Well, that was not really true. So this was just an observation that we made and that uh, we really became intrigued by that and we wanted to know what the cause was. So that was our, uh, that led us to wanting to investigate that. And also the sleep onset is easier because it is localized in time. So you can know that probably something is wrong with the beginning of the night and then you can specifically target, uh, for example, the first sleep cycle. So that was a good way to start. So that's really interesting. I knew that we were going to be talking about this today and I saw someone in the clinic earlier today who swears that they're not asleep until three o'clock in the morning, yet they go to sleep at 11 p.m. And their partner says, you know, you're asleep before then, but they swear they're not asleep. So, you know, I was trying to explain to them about this term sleep state misperception. I don't really like that as a term because it's got a sort of a negative connotation to yeah. it. Yeah, I agree. In the work that you've done, how do you try to sort of reconcile that? What did you find and what's some of the things we can help people understand that difference? So, yeah, indeed, we found that it seems uh, to be dependent on uh, how long you sleep. So we saw that people who are fall asleep and then after that they awake for a lot of times that uh, this can influence their perception of falling asleep. It's something that we, of course, need more research. Um, but I know already some uh, clinicians in the Netherlands who are treating people with insomnia 
who are already using this um, also to set people a little bit at ease because they can say, well, it's not, you're not crazy. It can be that uh, some parts of your sleep can lead you to um, have the feeling that you are awake. And then, well, we can try sleep therapy to fix it. And then, of course, we do not know exactly how that works. But it can already help people a lot to make them uh, feel taken more seriously. Yeah, I really like that way of thinking about it. So not going back to the patient and saying, well, you're wrong, you're asleep. But really recognising that there needs to be certain periods of undisturbed sleep to be able to make it feel like sleep and to be perceived or experienced as sleep. Yeah, because we now really are focused on quantity, so the amount of sleep that we do not really know if maybe you can sleep for for a very long time but still not have good quality or the other way around. So then in looking at modelling sleep onset and the work that you did, what did you actually find in both good sleepers and those with insomnia? We started with an exploratory analysis to uh, see um, if we could find something in the first sleep cycle uh, of people with insomnia. So if there would be a relationship with people who have a lot of sleep misperception, if they and their sleep would be different than people who do not have a lot of sleep onset misperception. And then we found that it seemed that the people with a lot of misperception uh, had a lot of sleep fragmentation. So uh, on the level of the sleep stages. So it seemed that they had to start over a couple of times and they kept awakening all the time. So then we uh, made the assumption that maybe you have to sleep uh, without disturbances for a certain amount of time, which can be a little bit comparable to, uh, for example, falling asleep on the couch. Sometimes people would nap for a couple of minutes and then their partner would say, oh, are you sleeping? And they would not know that. And then I think that's something that's recognizable for a lot of people. So our hypothesis was that maybe you have to sleep for a certain amount of time to know that you are sleeping. And then we started making a model and to answer questions like, okay, how long does your sleep have to be? And how long does the awakening have to be? Doesn't matter if you wake up for 30 seconds or for, does it have to be longer to disturb sleep? And you use that term awakening. What do you actually mean by awakening? Do you mean a American Academy of Sleep Medicine arousal? Do you mean a behavioral eyes opening? Do you mean a self-reported, I remember being awake? We uh, used awakenings that were scored according to ASM definition. So we did not use any of the arousals, only the 30-second awakenings. So there was already some kind of threshold there. But I would like to uh, look also at the arousals in next research. Sleep recordings in the Netherlands, we do not always have them scored. So that makes it a little bit more difficult to research that because it costs a lot of time. Yeah, and getting a bit technical, but I think the tools that we're using clinical practice, like the Rick Scharfen and Kale's sort of sleep stagings, is a blunt tool. Arousal definitions are a really blunt tool. You know, I like cyclic alternating pattern as a way of conceptualizing unstable sleep where there may be transient breaks in sleep that may actually then be perceived as wake or Hori's multi-level stages for the transition between sleep and wake that's not just wake N1. N2, but many stages in that transition. I think we we need to do better in terms of both our, you know, our clinical practice of how we think about this. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and we are, of course, now looking at a very coarse measure of 30 seconds, which can be far more detailed than we currently know. At the same time, I think there's also a lot of information in those standard 30-second sleep stages that we are currently not using. So, and those are the most easy to get. And we know a lot about them because we already did research for years and years. 
So I think that would be a nice point to start. And then maybe from there we can find what is the information that we need apart from that. Yeah, and I'll come back and ask you a little bit about what I need to look for in my sleep studies. But when you looked at the sort of length of awakenings people needed to perceive that they'd achieved sleep onset, what would, what did you actually find and how did that differ between normals and those with insomnia? We found that uh, already 30 seconds awakening, so that was the shortest awakenings that we had scored, uh, basically, that they were already um, really important for the sleep perception. So already awakenings of 30 seconds can disturb the sleep. And we also found that uh, people with insomnia seem to need longer uninterrupted sleep fragments than people with uh, than healthy sleepers. So it seemed like people with insomnia were a lot more sensitive to sleep fragmentation compared to the healthy people. Did you have any sense of what underpins that sensitivity? Yeah, it's difficult uh, because there are, of course, a lot of different things that can contribute to uh, sleep misperception. Uh, what we tried was also finding other factors and linking that to the sensitivity of sleep fragmentation. Uh, for example, we looked at how well people are uh, estimating time. And then we saw that people who were more sensitive for the sleep fragmentation also had more trouble with uh, time estimation tasks. Uh, so we asked them, okay, um, can you press a button after 10 minutes? So it seems that maybe those two factors are separately or not separately both contributing to the sleep perception. So if I'm looking at my sleep study that I've recorded on a patient with insomnia who's reporting that they have a long sleep onset, what do I look for? What, what would you suggest that I measure to try to get some insights into this sleep state misperception? Yeah, I think it would be easiest uh, if you want to get a feeling for the sleep recording to look at how long it takes for a person has a reasonably uh, undisturbed sleep. For example, how long does it take before he has uh, 20 or 30 minutes without waking up? And then if you see a lot of awakenings at the beginning of the night and it takes a lot of time to reach consolidated sleep, then it can be that uh, he or she misperceived the sleep onset because of that. You talked in one of your papers about an index, the sleep fragment perception index. Can I calculate that from my PSGs? Yeah, you can calculate it. It's a little, more, a little bit more difficult to calculate it from one night. So I think the, the other one is a bit easier. That's also one that I use later that I saw, um, calculated the latency until consolidated sleep for 20 minutes. That mm -hmm. one is easier to calculate from one sleep recording. I pick a block, the first 20-minute block of sleep without a 30-second awakening and calculate the time yeah. from sleep onset to the commencement of that block. Yeah, yeah, I think that one would help. And we've talked about insomnia, but what about other conditions with hyperarousal? Do you think this might be applicable to some of um, some other conditions that have a similar physiology to insomnia? Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. I would uh, particularly like to know what is the influence of hyperarousal on the sleep, for example, because um, one large question that I still have is, okay, um, people with insomnia seem to be more sensitive for um, those awakenings. But is it also, can it also be that their sleep structure uh, changes because of their hyperarousal or is hyperarousal maybe influencing uh, the sensitivity? So I would really like to know, well, how can we exactly measure hyperarousal and does it influ influence sleep structure? Yeah, if you can come up with a measure for hyperarousal, please let me know because <laughs> I, I'd really like that in clinical practice as well. Yeah, at the beginning, uh, I thought, okay, well, it's nice to look at hyperarousal, but it was more difficult than I thought to uh, <laughs> 
find an expression for that. I know. I try to kid myself that you know, I can just look at the EEG and go, yeah, okay, that looks like hyperarousal. But then my yeah, that would be great. My, yeah. my fellows go, well, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? Yeah, it looks like it. You know, yeah. just stop asking me questions. You know, I can't. <laughs> you know, put my hands on exactly what it is that I see. Yeah, that's another example of that. We know a lot of concepts about insomnia and how it works psychologically, but it's really difficult to couple that to the uh, objective measurement. That may help if we start to look at the, some of the measures like you're using in other conditions of hyperarousal, like PTSD, for example, because it's certainly in a clinical sense, I have people with PTSD who have sleep state misperception exactly the same as those who maybe have primary insomnia. So there does seem to be some similarity in the clinical presentation and the EEG mm-hmm. can often look pretty similar as well. Yeah, I think in the Netherlands, that would be maybe also the group of people that often do not get a sleep recording so that makes it a little bit more difficult also often with insomnia they often do not do a sleep recording because there's not much to see on the uh, polysomnographic recording anyway so that sometimes makes it a little bit more challenging so then once you got together your data on the sleep onset and had a better understanding of that what did you move on to what sort of research questions did that then give rise to I'm still hoping to uh, extend the measure a little bit so I can also look at sleep fragmentation on the whole night and not only at the uh, sleep onset. So we have a paper out in psychopharmacology where we try to do that. So we first looked at um, people who were uh, sleeping one night with sleep medication and one night without sleep medication. And we saw that when they used sleep medication, they had... uh, the impression that they fell asleep sooner and that seemed to be explainable because of uh, they had less awakenings at the beginning of the night. And then more importantly, we tried to get that to a whole night measure. So we looked at um, the survival time of uh, non-REM sleep and REM sleep. And then we saw that people with insomnia, um, when they use sleep medication, they seem to have more fragmented REM sleep. True. So it was not only a sleep onset thing, but through the whole night. And uh, right now uh, we have a paper out that is looking at the night fragmentation uh, in a larger group of people. So the difference between insomnia and healthy people. uh, And we hope that's going to be published soon. So do you think these markers will be able to be used as outcomes in some of the clinical trials in insomnia? I hope it can at least help maybe to find uh, different types of people with insomnia. So that's going back to the question that we started with uh, four years ago, because I can imagine that maybe not all people will have fragmentation of non-REM sleep. And there are also a lot of researchers, they think that uh, REM sleep plays a role. So I think if we can assess the fragmentation of those sleep stages separately, then it may help to find what's going on with the patient and why the patient has the impression that uh, he's not sleeping well. Thank you very much for that explanation of your research and good luck with your ongoing work. Yeah, thank you. So thanks for that, Dave. Another great interview. She sounded really lovely, so enthusiastic too. She's at the very start of her career. What were the main things? It's just, you know, straight after the interview, what kind of things were in the forefront of your mind? So one of the things I really liked about Lika's research, which is why I wanted to interview her, is I think her framework of the way she sort of talks about sleep onset as you need these continuous periods of sleep without awakening to perceive it as sleep. It's just a simple message that really resonates with people I see in the clinic. You can 
talk to them in that sort of language and it's not the, well, you're wrong, see, you actually slept this much. It really can be that understanding of, oh, yeah, I got bits of sleep, but these little bits of wake in between meant that it felt like wake across that experience. And her research really fits with that framework. So I, so I really like that. In fact, that was one of the things that really stuck out to me. I mean, here I am, I consider myself an expert in inverted commas with, with insomnia. I've mean, seen a lot of clinical patients over the years. I've never really had such a helpful framework to explain it to my patients because you're right, sometimes it's, oh, I don't know, it almost couches a bit of an argument that, no, 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 here's the data, here's your sleep study, here's the eight hours of really good quality or reasonable sleep but you're telling us you had nothing or half an hour. And I never really liked it. In fact, I don't know if you remember, this is an anecdote. Back in 2008 when I very first started working at the Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre, you know, it was pretty fresh and green in a way, you know, and you had called me into the office to look at these polysomnograms, like a, you know, epoch after epoch after epoch of what I would have considered sleep. And I was very skilled at was sleep scientists. I knew back then how to score sleep. Stacks and stacks of good sleep. But then you said to me, this is so-and-so and this is, and look, she said she's got zero sleep. What are you going to tell her? Here she is next door. <laughs> like I had to sort of quickly pull myself together and think, oh, no, I don't know what to do. So back, so it's going to be much, much more useful here 13 years later to have much sort of a better framework than working in the dark about how to, how to approach the patient who says I'm not sleeping and then you see the data that they are sleeping and then it's, it's really useful. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that is that nice framework. Yeah, we, we did some other work looking at perceived sleeping people with insomnia, and there wasn't often as big a discrepancy as, you know, eight hours versus zero, but yeah. not uncommon for someone to report three and be getting five, for example. And that's actually pretty consistent for a lot of people with insomnia. Yeah. And I remember I was always, we used to have lots of clinical meetings and the psycho- I was the psychology voice and against the medical voice that we'd have these team meetings. And I would I would often say, look, I don't really care. Or, I don't care. I don't, I'm not moved by your data. The person who she or he thinks they're not sleeping, and that's what I'm happy to go with. I don't. I'm not. I don't think it's that important that we've got this sleep study data. I don't know. I can't convince them because some of them would just actually think you've got the tapes mixed up, or that they didn't. Wasn't that helpful? In fact, it set up a bit of a, a conflict and a breaking of rapport anyway. Yeah, that's a really nice point because if we do take that approach, we'll look. Here's the data you know, you're sleeping more, it doesn't acknowledge that it's distressing. It's distressing to feel like not sleeping and to feel tired during the day and to feel not well. So that's, you know, you're right, you know, really is important to acknowledge that distress and acknowledge that it doesn't, you know, feel good. But nonetheless, it's it, in some people, too, it's, it, I would be really reassured to know, oh, good, I am getting sleep. That's how I thought it was always going to play out, but I was surprised by the people who, pushed back and didn't really believe it or didn't want to know that. This, this sort of research is it's very exciting and, I mean, I don't know, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but our Australian sort of sleep centres, I don't think anyone's really put a lot of attention onto sleep settings perception or am I wrong with that, that we do have a bit of a working group here locally? No, we're not really and part of it's the scoring criteria. So the way we score sleep stages with the traditional REM, non-REM and the stages of non-REM doesn't take into account, in, you know, really the sleep fragmentation or the hyperarousal. It really doesn't encompass that. Yeah. And so, you know, we're mandated by Medicare in Australia to use certain criteria to score sleep studies. And so if we want to do the extra, it's then an add-on 
on mm. on top of that. So it's mm. not something that's often done routinely. But as I talked about in the interview, there's such a rich data set that we record with sleep studies that hopefully we will get better biomarkers, both of hyperarousal and this fragmentation over time. Yeah. I mean, because I'm thinking about our sort of our sleep centres, often they're couched within the School of Psychology, for instance. Or And so how, how wonderful to think, hang on a minute, maybe the School of Electrical Engineering might just have a, they might have some better grants or some better ideas or and we could really make something of this. Yeah, and it's interesting because sometimes you come to it with a fresh set of eyes there's not mm. that preconceived notion that sleep fits in these boxes and please yeah. don't please don't disrupt my dogma or sort of challenge my <laughs> sort of framework if you can't you don't have nothing to start with you can actually look at it fresh and have a new approach so how do you go about trying to manage this in clinical practice Dave so pretty similar to yourself so particularly after looking at Lika's work really trying to talk to patients, have people understand what's going on at a brain level so they can, it's not a mysterious thing that seems like it's just not working. There's an understanding of why it can feel the way they feel. But the other thing for me at a purely clinical level is when I see someone who's often misperceiving sleep, often they've been referred from a setting where there's not the ability to objectively measure sleep and the treating practitioners have been treating a symptom and the self-report of the symptom and often the referral goes well I've tried this drug and this drug and this drug and this drug and this technique and nothing seems to be working that's the thing for me is like okay what is it we're actually treating and that's often one of the settings that I'll see over prescribing because if a little bit doesn't work well let's go a bit more and let's go a bit more and then that doesn't seem to work. So if you're looking for more information we'll put Lika's papers into the show notes. So what's your clinical tip this month, Dave? So it goes along with what I was saying at the end of our discussion. In medicine and lots of other sort of practices, if something doesn't seem right, we've got to think, yeah, maybe it isn't right. And that really applies particularly to this particular issue we're talking about. Is someone awake or asleep and how much are they actually sleeping? Because again, if you're either treating someone, be it with psychology-based strategies and they're not responding, or if you're treating them with pharmacotherapy, they're not responding. You just got to think, what am I treating? If I'm treating subjective sleep reports, then maybe they're off. Maybe there's something about that person's sleep, which means their subjective sleep report is not quite right. That's my tip. If something doesn't add up, it may not be right. So take a step back and rather than thinking, right, let's add more medications or go harder on a particular line, maybe we need to think about is the self-reported sleep experience a good reflection of the underlying physiology? So what's your pick of the month, Moira? So a tough pick of the month this time because we've had so much stuff, so much water under the bridge. But I'm going for a non-sleep pick, but I think it's actually quite related in, in the end really to our interest in the sleep world. Documentary series called Addicted Australia. It followed sort of eight or ten different individuals over uh, six months. So there was about six or eight part series. It was absolutely excellent. Um, There's a lot of interviews with um, Jan Lubman and the team at Turning Point, who are based here in Melbourne, Victoria, but other specialists too. I just, I just think it was really great. It just showed the struggle with addiction from you know, drugs, alcohol, gambling, the like. I found it really compelling viewing. I think a lot of people I've spoken to really loved it too. So if you haven't seen it, I think it's very important for all of us health professionals and mostly our audience are health professionals. I think it's um, good to get our head around 
the struggles with addiction, um, particularly they didn't necessarily um, talk about sleep, but I think that in our world as clinicians or researchers, we see a lot of struggle, whether it's um, alcohol, other drugs, or even prescription drugs, and the struggle with trying to, or even over-the-counter, you know, so-called herbal things. It just People can actually just probably have too much of the wrong thing at the wrong time and, and just need a lot of education, support and guidance and understanding and less judgment, less stigma. So, yeah, I, I thought that was really great, really sort of struck a chord with me. Nice pick. I, I really enjoyed that series too. So, yeah, thanks, Moira. So from my point of view, it's a book I read over um, some of the lockdown that reflects I've been seeing a lot of people with fatigue syndromes in the last 12 months and I mean, I suspect I'm going to see a number more with long COVID being a common thing in people who've mm. had COVID infections. So you, you know how I like my old books as well. So this one's called A Practical Treatise on Nervous Exhaustion. And it's written by oh, wow. George Beard in 1880. And wow. describing, you know, what we, what we think is this phenomenon in 2020, 2021 of burning out and feeling exhausted and having a sort of fatigue syndrome where we're just constantly tired. Well, you know what? It ain't that new. It's, it's not new. Yeah. amazing description of symptoms I'm seeing today and symptoms described in 1880 that are almost exactly the same and sort of, prog- really? sort of progress over time that really sort of fits a lot of what I see today. And what did they think in 1880 were the causal pathways? Yeah, so then a little different. So they do talk, they use those lovely non-judgmental terms like hysteria, particularly when, <laughs> when referring to women. Yeah. And neurotic, that'd be in there, wouldn't it? Neuros, neurasthenia, neurosis, yeah. neuroticism, uh, yes, particularly where women were involved. So, Of you know, course. So, yes, certainly judgmental in terms of some of the causality, but the common thing being that term nervous exhaustion. So that resonates because people still think of that sort of term now mm. about, you know, mm. too busy for too long has consequences mm. and can cause yeah. a, a range of symptoms. Yeah. So, yes, you don't have to buy the 1880 version, though, you know, I'm a collector of books, so I do have one of those. <laughs> um, it, there are modern reprints. So things to look out for in our next episode, we hope to talk to Sean Kane from Monash University, who's published some yet more work on light and the importance of that for just general health and sleep. So look forward to that. Uh, And there's a couple of research projects that we'll be running across this year that, just to give you a flavour of the things that we're looking at, looking at people's thinking styles and particularly traits of perfectionism and risk of insomnia because, you know, you and I more recognise in our clinical practice that's something that we see. So we're trying to characterise that a bit better. And also looking at a condition called REM behaviour disorder, and I hope to do an episode on that across this year at some point, which is uh, something that happens during sleep where people act out their dreams. And that can be an early marker of neurological conditions like Parkinson's disease. And we're doing some collaborative research with University of Melbourne again, looking at if we can find this as an early marker of Parkinson's, could we potentially get someone on Parkinson's treatment early and change the course of what may happen over the future? So, you know, it may be a way of trying to access people before it's too late in terms of treatment of some of those neurological disorders. And in other news, isn't it great to see our mindfulness paper get published, sees the light of day? It's been sort of on a on a shelf for a while and so well done to the team well done to Ali Peters it was her PhD project 
that she did with um, a lot of us colleagues at the Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre. So excellent. Well done. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. We're really proud that it's finally been published. So thanks for listening to this episode. And if you've got suggestions for other episodes you'd like us to produce, send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. We particularly love to feature early career researchers, like in this episode, just to get their work out there and help people understand and learn about their work. And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, subscribe and tell your friends and work colleagues about us and they can listen as well. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next month. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 